What's wrong with foreign aid? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Matt Warner. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Matt Warner. Matt is president of Atlas Network, a nonprofit organization committed to advancing freedom and economic opportunity throughout the globe. He got his master's in economics from George Mason University and is certified by Georgetown University in organizational development. He's also a Penn Campbell Fellow at the National Endowment for Democracy and a recipient of America's Future Foundation's Buckley Award. Matt focuses on the topics of economics, institution building, nonprofit management, measurement, and impact philanthropy. He is also the editor of the book Poverty and Freedom, which argues that the real solutions to poverty are worked out by people with a vision of change that is rooted in a local understanding of sustainable growth. Matt, welcome to The Curious Task. Thank you. Glad to be here. It's great to have you on. So Matt, our overall question today is, what's wrong with foreign aid? And I think this gives us a great opportunity to explore foreign aid itself, but primarily from the view of the attitudes and approaches that guide outsiders to help others. So I'd like to start with something that you note in the book, Poverty and Freedom, uh, you talk about this idea of linear thinking that's hard to resist. Just right off the top, you know, the idea, some places are rich, some are poor, some people are rich, some are poor. If we just take the wealth and expertise from one and give it to the other, put it in front of them, we're going to solve a lot of problems. Can you explore that a little more for me, this idea of this linear thinking? Sure. I think uh, one of the real reasons why that kind of thinking doesn't end up uh, working the way we hope is that uh, wealth does not come from that kind of an approach. Uh, wealth is something that uh, emerges as a function of um, uh, many, many people doing many different things in society and solving problems for each other. And uh, the challenge is that the problems that are being solved, that let's call them sort of small eye innovation, um, are pretty idiosyncratic and context sensitive. So it becomes frustrating, I think, for, uh, you know, folks with, you know, great intentions who have resources and education who want to just go and solve these problems for other people that they perceive to be in need. And what ends up happening is um, they either are disappointed in the results or even get egg on their face because they've made things worse. And there's a little quote from the book. You, you say that this linear thinking, this approach, that these outsiders are just going to help help these other folks because of their, you know, their wisdom and their riches that they can bring. It, quote, foolishly underestimates the complexity of the ecosystems we hope to see thrive. What's going on there? Can you unpack that a bit? Yeah. So I was um, very much influenced by uh, Eric Beinhocker's book, the origin of wealth, because what he does there is he makes what is essentially a very uh, Hayekian case for the use of knowledge in society. The idea that um, there uh, is more than just one type of knowledge. So if you and I go to university and we get a graduate degree or a PhD in economics, um, we might think that we now know how to uh, create wealth. But in fact, uh, wealth, as I said before, is a function of an ecosystem of activity that that no one is uh, in charge of. Because if, if they were in charge, and we have plenty of examples of people trying to be in charge of that, um, 
they lack the uh, what we could call the knowledge of time and place. That is, every situation on a daily basis calls for you know some nuance at the margin um, for how to optimize a particular situation at a particular time, and just as importantly, um, you can't centralize the real time. Uh, preferences and trade-offs and values that each person um, manifests through the decisions that they're making. And so the complexity around that is why the um, traditional scientific tools that we have for solving problems and understanding the nature of of various phenomena aren't really a, a fit for uh, again, what Beinhocker refers to, and which is an emerging uh, area of study, which is complex adaptive systems, that um, what characterizes them is that they are not only uh, multivariable, but the, the, the variables act more like agents rather than objects uh, to be acted upon. And so you end up with in- interdependency and um, these, if you create a model, they're very sensitive to initial conditions. So unless you can get a perfect knowledge of all of the uh, real-time preferences and trade-offs and values of everybody in that system um, and apply the right um, hypothesis and uh, model for, um, for running an experiment, um, you're going, you, you aren't just at risk of getting it wrong. You're at risk of getting it wildly wrong. And it seems to me a, a good way of thinking about it is, is not just that as a process or, or a solution is in play, you know, you're absolutely right. The idea is that, you know, you require a vast amount of knowledge and a process and also a framework to create to, to move that forward. Like the, the idea that someone could actually do that so efficiently, more efficient than the people on the ground, for instance, is, is one thing. But, but it would seem to me that there's also an, another side of this, which is the fact that even before you get going with a process or solution you might think is great, do you even have enough knowledge coming to the table about whatever culture or whatever people are there before this ball gets set in motion before? Like, you know, those people construct solutions right. in their head and try to implement them e- even even before the implementation phase. It's OK. Someone comes to you and says, hey, I have the solution. It's even a question if they have enough info informing that before it even starts. Forget about process. Right. And and if you spend any time digging into the way uh, data is acquired, uh, I'm I. I feel bad. I don't remember who said this, but there's a great quote that I will also uh, just just paraphrase, which is essentially the most sophisticated scientists and models in the world are um, all at the mercy of the collection method for the data in the first place. And that's not just the, you know, and what happens so often in these foreign aid projects is the incentives are such that you have these locally hired administrators who um, either uh, intentionally or or unintentionally, just fill in these uh, surveys and response forms and and uh, and reports uh, with just high varying degrees of accuracy. I wanted for you to trace for our listeners at at a high level just what your sense of just how much time and effort is spent on things like financial aid and working with NGOs trying to solve problems around the world and things like that. I think a lot of people because they don't live in this world tend to think of either they're going to donate some money to an organization they go off and do this stuff or or whatever the case may be but but I think for people that aren't living this these ideas every day it's hard to grasp just how many billions of dollars 
worth of time and money, literally, is wrapped up in all these systems and all these organizations trying to be outsiders helping other people, isn't it? Um, total government assistance um, on an annual basis is somewhere around $150 billion. Um, the uh, the the United States is around 50 and I believe Canada is around 40, 45 billion. Um, so that makes up quite a quite a big chunk of that. Um, and then if if you look at time, I mean, we, you know, you start with World Bank and IMF and the various a- agencies. Um, uh, and obviously these are large or organizations with robust staffs and Lots of, uh, you know, I've spent a lot of time the last few years meeting with, you know, professional development people. And, you know, there's, there is such a, um, a general sincerity uh, and pe- pe- people feel drawn to this cause. They, they want to make the world a better place. Um, and they're spending a lot of time and money on it. And they're very frustrated. It's actually not at all controversial to say there's something wrong with foreign aid. It's sort of right. a now ex- accepted wisdom starting about 15, 20 years ago that um, the way we've been doing it isn't the way we should keep doing it um, for various reasons. One is it's really hard for them to demonstrate that they made a lasting difference. Uh, two, there's lots of embarrassing, um, unfortunate uh, you know, case studies of uh, unintended con- consequences and things going wrong. And you have this growing movement now um, um, of, uh, you know, that we, we might call with the tagline decolonized development, which is this idea that, uh, you know, the whole premise that those of us in wealthy ed- educated societies um, are the answer for other pe- people's cultures and problems um, has a bit of a, a, a hubris and an imperialism and, and um, a strong interventionist streak that, um in you know now that we are spending more time talking about the importance of respecting uh, diverse cultures, uh, it sort of highlights this uh, outdated, outmoded way of thinking about progress. And as I said, sort of with the example I was talking about before, when maybe someone, like you say, good heart and well intentioned, wants to donate money to a certain organization or cause or whatever, even some of their time. Often, I think people think that you know what's so bad about funneling some funds and time and effort in, into a certain place that might need help, etc. But I don't think people actually sometimes realize that although some things are changing now, you're not giving money to somebody or you tend to be giving money and time to an organization that's working with another organization that's going to a country or a place that's working with another organization or the government to implement a solution, as you're saying, rather than in in many cases, for instance, working directly with the locals or empowering them or whatever the case may be. Of course, there's many different examples. I'm not trying to say it's it's all like that, but I think it's a lot more convoluted than some people may think in that that way, right? Right. And I think what what people hope is that someone smarter than me is out there knowing what to do with with my money and I can trust that. But right. the fact is that on on the ground, the pe- people who are trying to do um, this this work are also frustrated and sometimes dis- disillusioned with their own in- ineffectiveness. And so um, of course, in the meantime, while there is appetite for change, um, there are some limits to how widely or um, creatively people are willing to go if it means existential crisis for their career or, 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 or organization. But we really, we really, so in the last 15 years, we've seen a lot of efforts, both in terms of lip service and then also um, research and uh, good faith efforts to 
make the uh, outsider solutions more relevant for for local audiences. And there's there there are efforts to, you know, make sure that there's a local NGO that's a supporting partner and has input on anything that we're coming in to to provide. And um, and now there's more uh, act, activism around increasing capacity for for local NGOs because what often happens is it's a very sort of routine to, uh, tokenistic kind of uh, partnership where someone in uh, the global north meaning the the historically uh, donor countries has an idea has a project puts puts it together and then to check the box they they you know find some lo- local group who's you know, not going to say no to getting some some cut and participating, but they don't really have a lot of influence over what the project is or does. A quick story for any lis- listeners who are wondering, you know, well, what do you what do you mean by unintended consequences? And there's so many examples, but the one that I tell that I think really gets at this, and it's, but again, it's it's, it's not unusual. Uh, as part of the Millennium Villages project. In uh, Af- Africa, led of course famously by Jeffrey Sachs, one of the projects was that um, was to I- improve crop yields in a village in in Uganda, and they gave this uh, small village three hundred thousand dollars to switch from growing bananas uh, to growing corn, and in fact they did succeed in. Uh, increasing crop yields. Uh, but the problem was, again, if you think of this as, as an ecosystem and not a linear kind of problem to solve, uh, they, had no, they had no way of doing anything productive with, with the excess corn. Uh, the, the, um, the condition of the roads to get to faraway markets where they could potentially sell it, where there was demand, were we're not not good enough to make it uh, cost effective to, you know, hire the trucks to do it. They had nowhere to store it. And um, there's a quote from a woman in the village who was very hopeful about these do-gooders who were coming in to help them, who uh, then became very sort of dissatisfied with the experience and said, look, you know, she she's a widow with nine kids. And she said, uh, there's corn everywhere. It's in our houses. It's in the streets. And now uh, we have a rat infestation because it's attracted um, all of these rats. And so, again, I'm sure the people involved were really hopeful that this would make a difference. But it 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 really is sort of incredibly simplistic thinking, and it and it does not take seriously the value of local knowledge. And so, one thing that I hope we get to at some point is to talk about the relationship between the semi-modern um, uh, advent of the way we think about hu- human dignity and the impact that that's ha- had on um, supporting the iterative process of complex adaptive systems and increasing the likelihood of of innovation and idiosyncratic solutions. I think that's a great segue into the gear shift I want to do. So you made some excellent points and provided a great case study. And there's a great high level tour of, of the things I threw at you. So let's get right into some of that meat of the matter now. More formally, what is the outsider's dilemma then in a nutshell? Well, I th- it, so the outsider's dilemma is in its simplest form, um, how do I know that what I think other people will benefit from that I can provide um, is in fact going to be helpful 
and certainly not harmful. And the problem we face is that we're spending a lot of time, money, and and energy on things that we are coming up short on being able to prove are helpful. And in often cases, uh, if we're honest with ourselves, are probably harmful. And so the dilemma becomes, well, what does that mean then in terms of the authentic generosity I feel and the position I feel like I'm in to make a difference? Should I just do nothing? Or what can I do that um, you know satisfies this uh, ad- admirable desire I have to sacrifice something of mine to see someone else thrive. It's probably a little discouraging for some people to think like this, but at the end of the day, in, in, intent can't speak for it all, right? You could be as generous as you want and you could you could be feel like you want to do as good as you want and like you know be as you said, these people are often very genuine, but that 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 bridge between what you want to do and what the effects are, are an entirely different question. Yeah, I have a colleague who says uh, you know, let's let's care enough about doing good that uh that that we want proof that it worked, um, and so it's a uh, it, it it increases the burden on us to be thoughtful and and judicious. But I think I think what that should lead us to is to come back to this idea of hum, human dignity, which says not only that uh, other pe- people have equal moral worth to me, but that they have knowledge I do not have, and that that knowledge is valuable. And needs to be taken into account in a very central way in uh, in any kind of enduring solution that I, I hope to see. And so that has implications for the way philanthropy and and aid needs to reconsider its approach going forward. You've outlined three general principles and a way to think about the outsider's dilemma and how to sort of resolve it, if you will, at least get closer to resolving it. The first one is kind of already what we're already dipping our toes into, right? Which is ultimately ensuring that outsiders aren't substantively leading local change and recognizing that governments, local governments and people in the communities and so on and so forth actually have, as you said, more local knowledge. The idea would be to interfere in the least possible way with their individual agency and choices. But but ultimately, as you said, this isn't just about like an economic way of thinking, a decision-making way of thinking. It also ties us right back to that human dignity question, right? The, the, these are people and they should be treated as equals if you are to help somebody, not not that, you know, you're a bunch of saviors sweeping in, I guess, to, to come and save the day. Right. And, you know, it, it, let me be clear. It's, it isn't that if you are a local person making decisions for yourself that you automatically are making great decisions or that or that, um, uh, you know, someone who uh, is is local uh, and wants to make a systemic change is going to make a good one. It just means that that is a, is one of the important pre preconditions to increasing the likelihood of having something that as um, uh, Peter Betke and Chris Coyne and Pete Leeson call stickiness. So it, it's, it's, that's the first step is uh, if, if you want to see pe- people thrive, you have to look at how, uh, what was the process that helped other people thrive, as opposed to, here's how we got rich. Now we're going to do something very different to help you get rich. Well, no, the way we got rich was a we adopted um, uh, this idea of equality and dignity and autonomy. You know, Kant. Um, sort of pop, uh, uh, popularized the idea that dignity means autonomy, self-determination. And that has very practical implications for 
uh, the rules and the governance system that you would naturally gravitate towards, which is one that optimizes uh, choice landscapes and in individual um, uh, um, um, decision-making. And then that allows you to have these very sort of um, complex, real-time interdependent, pivot, pivoting, innovative uh, processes in, in society. So to me, the, the next step after you rec recognize that if something's going to stick in a local context, it's got to have the, um, the participation and input of, of the local culture. And then two, you want to look at uh, uh, institutions, the rules of, of the game. Uh, it isn't that a local initiative to convince every, everyone to switch from bananas to corn is going to be more successful than if, if an outsider did it. It might be marginally more, more successful. But the idea that uh, where the effort should be going is into uh, strengthening institutions of lib liberal democracy, which are hand in hand with this idea of in individual human dignity and um, autonomy and self-determination. When, when those things happen, uh, then you, you make, you sort of unleash the highest probability of accelerating real problem solving, real problem solving that lasts. Yes. And that, that's another one of the principles, as, as you outlined in the book, prioritizing institutions, as you were saying, that increase individual agency and economic freedom. And, and one thing I like is that the book essentially makes the point that this isn't solely about turbo boosting a, a people, if you will, and I'd say, oh, there you go. There's, there's, here's a way to get a bunch of iPhone 12s. I mean, don't get me wrong. Economic and material well-being is, of course, important, and people will be better off having the kinds of things we do here if they don't. Um, but, but one thing I like, as tying it back to what you're saying before, is that again, the book makes the makes the point that this, the idea is to give people the ability, recognize them with the same sort of dignity we have, and and so on, to allow them to have the framework to go through their own unique and natural evolution, not just you know set a fire and throw a bunch of gas on it, if you will. Clunky metaphor, but I, I think it, the point's important. Yeah, I mean, and. And look, we we had this idea half right uh, coming out of the Cold War and the fall of the Berlin Wall. And you had Francis Fukuyama predicting the end of history, meaning that liberal democracy would um, now be, you know, now and and forever the uh, uh, the governing sy system that that would be uncontested and, and rule the earth. But the way we went about spreading liberal democracy uh, had at its heart some something that I think is, we have now learned is antithetical to the idea, which is, you know, we imposed it uh, from the top down, trying to do copycat versions of our institutions, which again, they to the extent that they stick, it's because they are a function of the participatory affirmative participation of 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 the the uh, local people. And of course, you had a lot of local gov government and recipient countries highly cooperative with this process. But as um, Ivan Krestev, the political scientist Ivan Krestev and Stephen Holmes point out in their book, The Light That Failed, uh, the reason why that didn't work and, and in fact backfired in many places is because it uh, it was not something that the local people actually had a, uh, a large uh, hand in shaping. And so it became something that threatened their own identity. And uh, in, in response, they have uh, unfortunately 
uh, res responded to, you know, willing authoritarian leaders who come in and say that we need to reclaim our native identity and um, reject the West. And, um, and, and so that, so that hasn't worked, but that doesn't mean that liberal democracy does not lead to hum human dignity and wealth. It means that you can't export it and think that our form of it is the form that can be, you know, shipped in and set up by foreign experts on, on behalf of others. And I actually think that's an excellent place to take our break. So we'll do so right now. Everyone, you're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Matt Warner today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Bryce Tingle, Christopher McDonald, and Scott Scheel. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Matt Warner today. So, Matt, I think the first half of our chat was great. We started getting into the uh, three principles that will help people resolve or at least think differently about, about the outsider's dilemma and how to resolve it. Um, one of the last things you were just saying to me there was, was talking about the idea that, yes, there are certain principles at play that could work for that do work for us and could work for other people, but it's not just about exporting it and, you know, there you go, it'll, it'll work for them just nicely. I guess that's, that's sort of the difference between actually, uh, I suppose, the principles at play themselves and the actual systems that evolve from those principles, right? If we think we're just going to go there with, again, clunky metaphor, but I think it works, you know, uh, our ideal constitution and, and legislation and so, and so on, or, or even forgetting about government for a sec, even on a local level, our template way to run a business or whatever the case may be, that's not necessarily going to be as powerful as creating the framework for people to develop that themselves. Yeah. And again, let me, let me be clear about a couple of things. Um, uh, this is not ag agnosticism about what sy system of government a local pe people should adopt, nor is it an idea that there's nothing in common with uh, liberal democracies in different parts of the, of the world. James Robinson and Darren As uh, Asimoglu point out um, in, in their book, Why Nations Fail, that, you know, strong in, in institutions of liberal democracy share a lot in common, but they're idiosyncratic in a lot of ways. And, um, and that's important again for the, if we hope to see them stick and function as, 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 as we hope to, to see them function. Um, the, uh, the guy that wrote basically the textbook on institutions in, in organizational change, Richard Scott, said, you know, in, in, institutions are both the cause and effect of the people they govern. It's, a, it, it's an interplay. Um, and we have so many examples, as you brought up, constitutions of foreign experts coming in and helping um, whoever's in power write a new constitution. And, you know, uh, we've, we've seen how that's not worked, uh, particularly in, in Latin America. But I think then that, that leads us to the next question. Okay. If, if a precondition is, um, you know, uh, to pri prioritize in individual knowledge and, uh, liberal institutions who, who, who can actually then do the work of strengthening local institutions. And I don't think there's a perfect answer, but, uh, 
for for my money, I see the greatest opportunity in identifying uh, authentically local groups and NGOs outside of government who have a commitment to liberal democracy and are working, whether in sort of whole cloth or in, in, in incremental change, towards increasing that choice landscape and changing the, the uh, rules of the game. For example, we supported a project in uh, Burundi and we, we take all these ideas very seriously. So we don't go out and say, hey, you, you guys should do a project on this. They came, they came to us and said, we, we think it, one of the biggest problems in Burundi, which is one of the poorest countries in, in, in Africa, is the size of, of, of our informal market. And I think there's an opportunity, even though that this is a very um, uh, unfree place, to persuade the, the government that it's, it's in all of our best interest to make it easier for those in the informal market to uh, join the formal market. If you recall, uh, the Arab Spring was kicked off in a sense by uh, the uh, gentleman, uh, Mohamed Bouazizi in uh, Tunisia, who had a, uh, you know, years of experience being harassed by police and having his money and his uh, goods stolen because he was uh, informal. He didn't have formal protections for or property rights over his wares. And so he unfortunately lit himself on fire and his final words, uh, at least that day were, uh, how do you expect me to make a living? And this is unfortunately a shared experience in many economies uh, where uh, you know people op- have no choice but to operate outside the formal market and then they are vulnerable to harassment and so they can't ever grow. Well, in Burundi, they succeeded with this project in both uh, lowering the official fees associated with uh, uh, getting licensed, simplifying the process so you didn't have to spend three months going to 10 different government offices and bribing your way into getting a license, which if, if you're a micro business, you have to make every, you know, money every day to survive. You don't have time to, to navigate that. And so um, they, they, they did those things. And in the year prior to, to those reforms, uh, they had had a 5% increase in business licenses. And then in the year after they had a 49% increase. And one of those new uh, formal businesses was uh, run by a gentleman known locally as Papa Coriander because he made products out of coriander, uh, drinks and soaps and things. And um, he, he had been operating his small business for many, many years. He had two employees. Um, and within a year, this is a remarkable story, uh, he had grown his business now that it, that it was formal to 100 employees. And what that shows us is that People in these economies do not lack the talent, the knowledge, the entrepreneurship, um, the foresight to be successful. Uh, they've got all of that. What, what they need are uh, the protections of, uh, of, of their institutions to foster growth. And uh, this, this, this is the way we need to go about it. But again, that third tenant, of supporting local NGOs, um, we still need to be ju- uh, uh, judicious about you know who's a serious uh, actor in this space, who's committed to real change. Um, but we have to be very, very careful that we aren't um, 
telling them what the solutions are. We have to have them tell us and then support them in their vision for change. Which rounds off one of the principles of the outsider's dilemma, or how to resolve it, I should say, which is supporting the vision of local and independent initiatives, think tanks, et cetera, to support that institutional change, as you said. One thing I think that connects very nicely to one of the other things I want to talk to you about today, I wrote down when I had read the book, which is that um, in the intro, I like you put uh, Mauricio Miller, a, a social entrepreneur, and he notes that at a high level, outsiders tend to overstep and overthink their role and assume too, uh, basically too much leadership or, or think too much of their role on the one hand, or at least act too much in it. In all the things we've been talking about today, how, how do you think people that, as you said, outsiders that do want to help um, should think of their role? How do they strike that balance? Even if they understand these principles, is what sort of a rule of thumb or a couple that you can think of is the idea, as you said, support and guide, not step in and control? Like, how do we sort of round off that discussion as far as what is the true role of the outsider if they understand the outsider's dilemma? Well, I think one of the most important things is to, A, start with the idea, a very serious um appreciation for the idea of human dignity and the piece of it that leads us to be humble about our own um, convictions around what other people ought to do. Um, Mauricio Miller, uh, people, if they haven't heard of him, uh, I highly recommend his book, The Alternative. He's he's from the, uh, the U.S. context where he spent several decades working in Oakland with low-income communities, and he had a very tra- traditional uh, uh, so- social services apparatus trying to help people succeed. And he finally figured out this dignity problem led them to think that they knew something that pe- people in low-income communities don't know. And and because of that, uh, it leads us to a lot of ineffective um, things that start with the dynamic of you are less than me. And that is disempowering and counterproductive to the enduring path to prosperity that someone needs to follow it has to start with their own self-determination and their confidence in their own uh, sense of uh, potential. And so he's he completely changed the way that he did things. He got a MacArthur Genius Grant and was uh, uh, an, uh, an, an Obama appointee. Um, and he has a rule for his staff. You, you are not allowed to, quote unquote, help any of our clients, meaning you can't intervene. What, what they do instead is they respond to the initiative that the, that the communities themselves identify and they fuel what the, the communities are trying to do to solve their own problems. And it's been much, much more successful. And when you read those stories, and I won't get into any of them, but you when you read the stories in retrospect of how those communities succeeded, it becomes so clear that nobody ex ante would have uh, dreamed up that particular sequence of events. And that of course makes sense when you think about a complex system where it's iterative and you, you know, you can't control it from the outside and and expect to see it. So uh, we have a problem when we think we are, um, caring for others, but we're actually objectifying them. We are thinking of them as an object of of our generosity. And instead, we need to turn that around and realize that uh, they are no different than us. Uh, This doesn't mean that uh, technical knowledge or expertise or education aren't important. We, We believe strongly in idea sharing and in that being 
an important part of innovation diffusion. And but how ideas get uh, received and adapted and adopted is the prerogative of the local community, and that's where we have to. Um, uh, re rethink our role. So whether it's like, you know, the individual, the business, the town, the village, wh- whatever, the community, at the end of the day, the idea is that they're driving that market for ideas or literal market for an economic sense, um, you know, feedback process, right? It, it's up to them to be able to test ideas, bring them out, ha- see, if, see if they succeed, see, you know, even, even if there's two good ideas, which one's better at the margin, that kind of thing. They must be driving that sort of feedback and that market driven process, as opposed to, as you said, someone sort of taking their hand and pulling them on one trajectory or Another. Yeah, I mean, there's there's an example of a development expert being very frustrated because a local community would not cut down the hay in that had grown um, uh, around their farms because they believed that God would disfavor them if if they did that. Now, because I'm not part of that culture, I would be tempted to think that that is an unwise way to think about that resource. Right. But I'm not in that culture, and so. The, I, I have my own things, values and beliefs and whatever, and I have my own sort of parameters around which a viable solution has to rest. And so, uh, again, it just gets to the fact that, uh, rather than try to, uh, extract all of this data, which is a fool's errand, uh, the solution is to imbue, uh, other pe- people with the the dignity they deserve to be autonomous and self-determining and to support the strengthening of the institutions that are going to protect that. Shifting gears just a, a little bit, but still still definitely connect, connected. And this might be an, an incomplete thought. So, of course, you helped me un- unpack it and complete it and let, let me know what you think of it. But, but I found as I was reading... Uh, your book and, and looking at other things on this topic and getting my head back sort of in that head space, it, it occurs to me that, of course, a lot of this surrounds like, ultimately um, improving people's material well-being. And, and that's a good thing. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. But I find that underneath all that, especially when it's connected to the, talking about the importance of local knowledge in the community, that there's also a large part of our discussion that's implicitly noting that, you know, a, what we're talking about also helps build a strong civil society and a sense of community for individuals if you respect their dignity and are an outsider that wants to help in such a way that's empowering rather than than directing. Even in a non-economic sense, I think this is very important, right? There's on the one hand, you can see someone going to, get just an example, a town or community and saying, hey, here's the way to do things. And whether that creates a, a reliance cycle or whatever the case may be, or someone looking to an outsider for help versus actually creating a solution and a framework or helping to create that solution framework people work within. It's not just that these individuals are creating businesses and, you know, able to get to a market easier and so on and so forth. Again, that's very important, but they're also working with each other and you're actually helping sustain and maintain that community rather than, again, as you said, looking at these people as objects and dots moving around on a graph. Uh, the best thing I read on this is no- Nobel Prize winning uh, economist Amartya Sen's book, Development as Freedom, where he he argues for the removal of unfreedoms, which we could call the strengthening of the institutions of liberal democracy, is, is the end in itself. And he carefully and thoroughly and persuasively uh, makes clear how um, incomplete and limiting it is to have the view of me- measuring our progress solely on material well-being, that there are th- other things that are important. Now, of course, if someone isn't meeting their their basic needs, then that's then that's a problem. Um, and you know, uh, 
we certainly don't want to um, art artificially assume that there are limits to how prosperous any given community can get. You know, sky's sky's the limit. But what he says is um, the the freedom itself is the most important thing. You know, you can have it, examples, and there are some, and they're a bit controversial where. Um, uh, non-democratic means are used to impose uh, liberal policies. Um, uh, ultimately, I don't think that that is successful, and I think that bears out. Um, and so the even if GDP per capita goes up, uh, because there are things uh, you know that are fundamentally more important, and it, and it's um, helpful to note that. When you get those things right, prosperity tends to follow, and so it it isn't a choice that you have to make between, um, you know, wanting to see people prosper materially, uh, or to have freedom. Um, freedom begets uh, uh, material well-being. The reality is that we we do live uh, with governments and states and large organizations being involved in things like foreign aid treaties, transfers, and, you know, sitting from a top-down perspective, trying to affect, we hope in most cases, genuinely, they want to affect good, good change. And as you said, there's a lot of talk right now, uh, especially within the last five to 10 years about mentalities changing around foreign aid and, and how people ground. And so I, of course, that's important to keep in mind. At the end of the day, that's, that's never going to be perfect. What do you think the role of people like us, like, is about on this topic, you know, to, we just continue spreading ideas and trying to keep normalizing and keep spreading the idea of the kinds of things we've been talking about today. You know, the, t the top down sort of approach to thinking about this doesn't work. The linear thinking, uh, you know, is something that we should be fighting against. Uh, you know, the, the outsider's dilemma is, is that r really the solution? I'm talking short of like, you know, actually starting a foundation or something like that. Is it just the idea that, Hey, we got to get more of this kind of thinking out there. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, a, a plug for, my my organization is that we we are following this model in the way that we do grant making uh, to support local or uh, organizations and so you can uh, connect with you know if you have a certain country that you particularly care about you can connect with those local org organizations and if they're committed in the broad sense to liberal democracy then it's probably worthwhile to support them if they are an, an effective group or not um, uh, but. I also I'm working on a book with uh, my colleague Tom Palmer, and um, the way I'm thinking about uh, you know because the the wind is at our backs in terms of appetite for change, at least in rhetoric. Um, so when we look at World Bank and we look at IMF and some some of these other groups, and you know, in 2013, I know you you folded. Um, the agency in Canada into, and now it's Global Affairs Canada. The same thing just happened in in the UK uh, with DFID folding into the Foreign Office. Um, you know, this moment uh, is ripe for change. And so, what I see though is a real lack of like very clear, practical um, uh, direction on how to change. And so, in a just in a broad sense, uh, I'll share that we, where I think a group like a World Bank um, could potentially change, and, and Oxfam, I mean, they laid off, I think, like 1,400 people last year during COVID. You know, th these, these groups are going to have to change. So th they need us, uh, 
an answer on how to change. And I would recommend that World Bank do a couple of things. One, um, limit their professional staff to the function of gathering and disseminating, disseminating data and, and information. Be a research institution. Uh, uh, facilitate the availability of the latest research. You know, I, I have large criticisms of um, what Duflo and Banerjee are doing and they won a Nobel Prize for in terms of trying to do ran, randomized control trials to Dem demonstrate what is the, the best way to do development, still accepting a top-down approach. Um, but that's healthy. That's good work that should keep going. Uh, Jeremy Shapiro is doing really good work on actually trying to get at me measuring the, uh, the surplus or deficit between what we think people want and what they actually want. And he's doing this with uh, you know, real cash on uh, on the table with a willingness to pay model. So he's going in and saying, do you want how how much like what is the indifference curve for you wanting your portion of this intervention that someone else baked up uh, that we think is one of the best ones um, versus some amount of cash? And so he's showing through that that um, uh, the high variability of of the way pe pe people value different things and that that means that if you're still trying to use a regression model as Duflo and Banerjee do to see what you know uh what works on on average it's not going to satisfy uh the idiosyncratic needs of everybody in that community so um so uh keep the research going make it available, convene people, accelerate knowledge, uh, but dismiss or reassign all of your planning staff and your project design staff. Stop doing that. Um, and to the extent that you're going to continue providing financial support, do, do what we're doing, although there, there may be other ways to get at this. But um, the the political apparatus is not the right way to in influence uh, to is not the right partner for achieving change. The incentives are too per, uh, 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 perverse. So find a local NGO committed to strengthening the institutions of liberal democracy and support their capacity building. Hold them accountable on not your measures of success and your values, but their own self-defined measures of success. You know, what's happening right now in development, and you can cut me off if I'm running on too long, but is, you know, um, Samantha Power is likely going to be our, our, our new USAID administrator. Um, her book, The Education of an Idealist, after being um, the ambassador to the UN, um, showed some increased hu humility around the limitations of outsiders. She says, you know, uh, there's only so much we can really know about cultures that are not our own. Um, that said, it's very popular uh, in this new administration to focus on our values in development. So climate change, um, in, in income inequality. And my point is, even if you are gung-ho on those priorities, please recognize that those are your priorities and not a local community's priorities, and that uh, the way that these kinds of things actually get executed at the downstream 
it's not the right way to go. So again, uh, de-escalate your function as a planner and a designer and focus on accelerating and convening for the increased flow of information and let people adopt or not adopt ideas as, as they see fit um, and then support the capacity building for local vision and local um, uh, initiative. One, one more thing I want to throw your way before we head to our formal wrap up is an objection. I think some people throw out there sometimes to this sort of discussion, which is there can be no objections to what I've said. <laughs> it's, you know what? We'll just cut the edit right there. Episode done. <laughs> no, uh, no, yeah, um, please. no, no. Yeah. So it's, uh, you know, people say, you know, we're talking about ultimately, hopefully, especially in the long run, affecting big change. Uh, some people say, Hey, look, Government is the only kind of institution, big institution, that can fix big problems, especially if someone's listened to this chat. I hope they don't feel that way. And, you know, as people as you and I would both agree that if you actually think through the problem, uh, th that's not really the, the right way to think. But on first glance, it isn't so stupid that people do think that, as uh, you know, if they haven't put a lot of thought into this. You know, what do you say to somebody that just like th throws that kind of point uh, at you just just to round off like our part of the conversation? Someone says these problems are too big. Um, well, I think, you, you know, it the most dip diplomatic way forward on that is to say, look, government is a key actor in, in the solution. Um, the important thing for us, which we didn't touch on here, but I would bring, bring it up in a conversation about this is um, we care about the authentic functioning of local democracy. And um, as uh, the narrow, the newest book from us, Asimovu and Robinson point out the narrow corridor of success, meaning to get it right, you've, you've got to have a functioning government that sticks to its knitting and, and, and isn't corrupt, but you've also got to have a robust civil society where pe people are participating in the solution um, of evolution. Um, and so, uh, you, you can feel some, sort of symmetry with the idea that these are big problems. So you need a big government solution. Um, what I would say is that, but that isn't how success has happened in, in the past. In fact, the opposite. And if you, but we can come together in most cases, I think on the importance of, of active democracy. And so um, if we have a strategy that supports uh democracy and doesn't undermine it. I mean, you have cases like in Tanz Tanzania, historically, where foreign aid made up sometimes 30, 40, 50% of, of their annual government re revenue. And it's not hard to see that those politicians are not accountable to their, their people. They're accountable and catering to outsiders. So if you want to push a big government solution, a sort of uh, World Bank to government or USAID to government, you are undermining local democracy. And that is not only immoral, but it's also totally um, uh, preventing the actual viable solutions that are going to work because the participation has value. It brings that nuance and idiosyncrasy that is going to make it stick in that environment. And, and I'll lastly say, uh, I... I don't think you necessarily need some massive overhaul to see big results. Uh, both Bill Easterly and Will, uh, the late William Baumel and Carl, Carl Schramm, they've, they've all concluded that in 
incremental change around the rules of the game can have uh, huge uh, sort of um, in, impact. You know, we, we supported the elimination of the minimum capital requirement in, in India, uh, where you don't have to prove you have a certain amount of money in order to get a license to have a legal business, which, you know, people anecdotally told us like, hey, I, I know I have to have 111% of GDP per capita and prove it to a bureaucrat. Uh, and I have to have three times that to bribe him anyway, you know, it, so eliminate that. How many millions, if not hundreds of millions of people does, does that impact? And that's one, one little change. That's about time for our formal wrap up now. So let's, we will head there. So let me say, Matt, we, we've talked about a lot. Let's try and bring the conversation full circle and put a finer point on our exploration of the question. So let me ask you, what do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on what's wrong with foreign aid and, and how we can go about thinking differently about it? If you wanted people to take away one or two or just a few things from everything we've talked about, what would those ultimately be? Number one, the idea of human dignity doesn't just sound nice. It has practical implications if 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 we take it seriously that can help inform the effectiveness of the way we go about trying to make the world a better place. So uh, that's that's one. Two, um, I would like to see a yes and approach, meaning a collaborative approach to reforming foreign aid, one that isn't not necessarily polarizing and antagonistic. And I say that because I see a lot of common ground among what would otherwise be politically diverse groups around um how we need to apply principles of uh, local coordination, um, decreased foreign intervention. Uh, I think we can all come around, come come together on some of these things and listen to each other. Um, and so a pluralistic approach is is fine with me because I think it will get us closer to what I think is going to work than if we were sort of knives out. Um, and then thirdly, um, over the last 20 years, the number and the quality of local think tanks throughout the world has exploded. It's a phenomenon even beyond the, the, the Atlas Network's um, scope uh, in terms of who we work with. Um, but there's something really exciting happening in, in the think tank world where, uh, where people are getting very good and very smart and very effective at advancing the ideas of liberal democracy. And why that's important is that we are, we are coming off of a majorly disappointing period of thinking that we were going to reach some sort of a hegemony, um, when in fact authoritarianism and populism is on the rise. I think Freedom House, I think for the first time, the, the number of democratic countries um, has gone down while the undemocratic ones has gone up. Um, so. Uh, we can't give up. Uh, um, and there are reasons to be hopeful um, uh, if we increase our our scope to include these really um, cost effective and inspiring local think tanks around the world. I think we'll leave it there. Matt Warner, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. Thank you, Alex. That was great. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. 
The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.